prayer. Almighty Father, we thank you for this time you've given us this evening to come before you as your people, to sit at your feet and to hear your instruction to us from your word. Lord, I pray that you would enable me by your spirit to speak the truth and speak it clearly. And then, Lord, give us hearts and minds to hear your truth and to be strengthened by it, to be drawn more and more to faith and repentance and turning more and more to the cross of your Son. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking this evening at Genesis chapter 15, and you might find it helpful to follow along with the text in your own um, Bibles. And we come to this chapter and we see a man named Abram. And if that name's not familiar to you, you may know him better by the name Abraham, the name that God gave him in chapter 17. Now, to understand chapter 15, what's going on here, there are two things you need to know about Abram. The first thing is you need to know that he was the recipient of great promises. In fact, the story of Abram essentially begins with a promise. If you look at chapter 12, uh, verse 1 there says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here at the very beginning, this outset, the calling of Abram, as God called him to leave his people, leave his land, and go to a new land, God gives him promises. The promise that he'd be a great nation, that his name would be great, and that through him all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. But God gave him another promise shortly thereafter in Genesis chapter 13, beginning in verse 14, we read, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So here we have God promise Abram that he would possess the land, and not just he, but his offspring would possess the land that he was currently passing through. And God also says that his offspring will be like the dust of the earth in number, basically an innumerable, innumerable number of offspring. So we first see that Abram was the recipient of great promises. But Abram was also a man with a seemingly insurmountable problem. That's the second thing we need to see this evening. If you look back to chapter 11, we see that actually the problem appears even before the promises. Chapter 11, looking at verse 29, it says, Abram and Nahor, who was Abram's brother, both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Now there in verse 30, anytime you see the Bible say that basically the same thing twice, it's probably significant. It's, the scripture is emphasizing something for us. And it's clear what the emphasis here is. Abram had a wife, but she was barren. She had no children. Now, that would have been, had been a problem in that day regardless. As you read through Scripture, you realize what a burden it was in that day for a woman to be barren. Uh, Often we see men with multiple wives in Scripture, not, never affirmed, but the examples are there. And whenever there were multiple wives and one wife didn't have children and the other ones did, it was a great shame to be the wife that was able, unable to bear children. Um, so there had been a shame for Sarai to not have children anyway and for Abram not to have any children. But particularly in light of the promises. God had given these promises. Your name will be great. 
you will be a great nation. I'll bless the peoples of the earth through you. Your offspring will possess the land, and they'll be numerous. The fact that his wife was barren and without child would seem to be an insurmountable problem to these promises. So these are the two things we need to have in our mind as we come to chapter 15 this evening. So chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So again, God comes to Abram and speaks to him and gives him words of blessing and of promise. God says, I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, in light of, these, in light of what God has said here, Abram's response is quite Interesting, in verse 2. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Now, if God had come to you in a vision and had spoken words of blessing and promise to you, one response we might have is fear. Oftentimes in Scripture, whenever God appears to someone, their response is to be afraid. That's not what we see from Abram. We also might expect that Abram would be grateful be overawed with thankfulness and gratitude that God had come and blessed him in this way, given these words of blessing. That's not what we see either. Instead, we see Abram ask the question, Lord, what can you give me? Now, it's a strange question in response to what God has said anyway, but especially um, in light of what had just recently happened in Abram's life. God says, I am your shield. I'm your defender. I'm your protector. I'm the military guardian. And in chapter 14, we'd seen that Abram's nephew, Lot, had been captured by a group of kings and had been taken away captive. And Abram got together the various men who were part of his household, not his children, but the various people who were collected, his workers, basically, and his various allies there, and had gone out and defeated these kings and had rescued Lot. And he knew that it was from the hand of God that this happened. Because if you look there at chapter 14, beginning in verse 18, we encounter this interesting character, Melchizedek, who we'll, won't know much more about until we get to Psalm 110. Quite a bit of ways to go there. But there's this interesting figure of Melchizedek. We're told that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who, has de- who delivered your enemies into your hands. Melchizedek made it clear to Abram that his defeat of these kings was the result of God delivering them into his hands. Abram had already seen what it was for God to be his shield. He also had already seen what it is for God to be his great reward. Back in chapter 13, at the beginning of the chapter, we read, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. To this point, Abram had already become a very wealthy man. In very difficult circumstances, God had blessed him with livestock and had blessed him with material possessions. He already knew what it was for God to be his very great reward. So it's strange that he asked this question, Lord, what can you give me? But if we finish the sentence, we see why Abram says that. Verse 2, Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. It's clear here that Abram had in his mind the promises God had made. He was thinking about the promises God had made. We saw in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, the promises to be a nation, to have a great name, to have many offspring, to possess the land. And Abram's like, Lord, how can you fulfill these promises as long as I don't have any children? 
Will I have to resort to looking to one of my servants to be my heir? Is that the way you're going to fulfill this promise? Through someone who was just born into my household? How does God respond to Abram's complaint here? Well, verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So God says, No, it will not be a servant, but I will indeed give you a son. Now, this is a remarkable word here from God. We know that at this point, Abram is somewhere between 75 and 86 years old. Uh, past the age, you know, there are the examples of, who was it, Tony Russell, the, uh, you know, a few years ago, who did have a child in you know, advanced age. But even for men, this is beginning on in years. And we don't, we're not sure precisely how old Sarai is at this point, but she's also um, past the normal childbearing age. So it's a remarkable promise God gives. It will not be a servant. I will give you a son from your own body. And God does something else. He asks him to come out and look up at the stars of the heavens. And he says, count the stars if you can. So shall your offspring be. Now, is God simply making a statement here about the numerity, that how many offspring there will be? He is making a reference to that. Just, you know, they will be more than the dust of the earth. They'll be more than the stars of the heavens. But there's something else God is doing here. Remember what Melchizedek had said back in chapter 14, verse 19? He refers to God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth. So when Abram came out here, and God directed him to look at the stars, Abram knew that he was looking at the handiwork of God. This is God's creation. And God asked him, look at what I've done. If I can do this, I can give you a son from your own body. So it is a word of assurance that God can indeed fulfill the promise he's made. How does Abram respond to this word of the Lord? We see there in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Abram heard God's word of promise. And how did he respond? He responded by believing that word of promise. And what happened when he did that? We're told that God credited to him as righteousness. God looked upon Abram as being right, as being good, as being just and holy and pure. And that's not because Abram was a sinless man. In fact, as you read through the account of Abram, he is a sinner, just like you and me. It's not because he's sinless, but because in believing God's promises, God now looks upon him as being right and pure and holy. But God has another word for Abram. There in verse 7, the Lord says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Now, this is not a new promise. This sounds like what we've just heard. So, not a new promise for Abram. But how does Abram respond to this word? Verse 8. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that will gain possession of it? It's amazing. We go from verse 6, where we're told Abram believes the Lord, believed the Lord, to verse 8, where Abram says, Lord, how can I know? reminds me of, in Mark chapter 9, the father of the demon-possessed boy who comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, you know, Master, if you can, please help us. And Jesus' response is, if I can, all things are possible to one who believes. And what does the father say? I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. The man is saying, I do believe, but there's still this doubt in my mind. There's still this root of unbelief in my mind. Help me overcome that unbelief. Well, likewise here for Abram, he, he's heard God's promises and he, he believes them. 
And he still has this question mark. He still has this doubt. He still has this concern. How is God going to do this? How can he know God is going to do it? So how does God, how does God respond to Abram's expression of doubt? Verse 9. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. God gives this very strange instruction. He says, Take these animals. And what happens next indicates, I think, that Abram understood what God was getting at here. When God tells him to take these animals, Abram knows what's going on. Because we're told in verse 10, Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. It's as if Abram knew what he was supposed to do with these animals. God tells him to bring them, he brings them, he cuts them in half, and separates them to form something of a pathway in between the pieces. It's likely here that Abram was familiar with a, a ritual and understood that, that this is what God was going to ask him to do, arrange this ritual. So that's what Abram does. Now what happens next? We're told that as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and, that, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years but I will punish the nations they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, there's a lot there in what God says to Abram, but the point I would like to draw at this point uh, right now is, it's almost as if God is saying, Abram, I see that you are impatient to see the promises fulfilled. I've given you these great promises. You wonder, Lord, when are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? Please show me. And God is saying, in fact, not only will you not see it with your own eyes in your life, but it will still be several generations before it's fulfilled. God's telling Abram that his time scale is not the same as Abram's time scale. Abram was ready to see the fulfillment in his day. God says it will come, but in future generations. And then we have what I believe is the ritual that God had instructed Abram to prepare. In verse 17, when the sun had set and darts had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the river, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, Cabanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So God promises to give him the land of the ites. So what is going on here when this, this, this smoking fire pot and blazing torch appear? And clearly this is God making himself visible and manifesting himself to Abram in this form. Uh, we, we oftentimes refer to these as theophanies, where God makes himself visible at a various time in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And he passes between these pieces. It's quite likely that we will never understand perfectly what was going on here. But one explanation that's been given, which makes sense to me, is that this is a ritual where when one person made a promise to another and wanted to make an oath to confirm that promise, they would arrange this type of ritual by taking these animals and dividing them and then walk between them, basically swearing that, may this happen to me if I do not keep my word. May I be torn asunder like these animals if I do not keep my promise. It's, a, it's an oath that's being sworn. And that may very well be what was going on here with God passing through the pieces. What we know for certain, though, is that whatever God was doing, he was doing it in response to Abraham's expression of doubt. Abraham, Abraham doubted 
Lord, how will I know? And God did this to show him you can know. So it was, a, it was a, an act of assuring Abram of God's promises being fulfilled. Well, this sounds very strange to us, I believe. This, this covenant to give land, this covenant to, or these promises to give many children, um, this uh, strange ancient ritual here, it sounds very foreign to our experience. But there is a connection with our experience. We see here in verse 18, it says that the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, the word covenant is a very rich word in Scripture, and we can't say everything there is to say about this evening. But from this passage, we see a couple things that are true about covenant. One thing that's true about covenant in the Bible is when God makes a covenant, it's unilateral. God does not come and negotiate terms. It's not, it's not a contract worked up between business partners. God comes and announces what his covenant is. So God comes and makes a unilateral covenant. We also see that the heart of the covenant is promise. It, we're told here that God made a covenant and said, and then we have the words of promise, to your offspring, to your descendants, I will give this land. So covenant is a unilateral act of God, and it involves a promise. Well, has God made a covenant with us today? He made a covenant with Abraham, has he made a covenant with us today? And the answer is he has. Uh, We can see that if we turn to Matthew chapter 26. This morning... We followed the sermon by partaking of the Lord's Supper. We won't be doing that this evening, but it's something we do with varying regularity here at Trinity after dark. But it's a picture of the covenant that God has made with us, a reminder of the covenant He's made with us. If you look at Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26, what's the, what's the context here? The disciples are gathered with Jesus to celebrate the Passover, the Jewish festival and ritual of Passover. And they're gathered in the upper room, and in verse 26 we read, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this vine of the co- I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. We read there in verse 28 that the cup, Jesus calls it the blood of the covenant. So there's a covenant here. Just as with the covenant with Abraham, there's a covenant here. Well, if there's a covenant, the question is, what are the promises of this covenant? And in fact, the promises of the covenant Jesus refers to here are many, but we see two in this particular text, and they're precious promises. We're told there that this is the new covenant, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What's the first promise of this covenant? It's that in the pouring out of Jesus' blood, there is forgiveness of sins. Remember we read back in chapter 15 of Genesis that when Abram believed God, God counted it to him as righteousness? You may have asked the question, how can that be? How can Abram as a sinful man, be looked upon by God as being pure, right, and holy? How can that happen? Well, the answer to that question is right here in this verse. It's because in the shedding of Jesus' blood, there's the power for the forgiveness of sins. How did that happen? Well, on the cross, in the form of His Son, God took upon Himself the judgment that our sins deserved. 
Our sins deserved His judgment, but He chose to to bear it Himself in the person of His Son. And because He's borne the judgment of our sins, He can now look upon us as being right and pure and holy. So the first promise of this covenant is that there is forgiveness of sins in the blood of Jesus. There's a second promise here, and it may not pop out to us because it doesn't look like a promise, but it is there. What does Jesus say in verse 29? I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. There's a promise that in this this new covenant is now going to open a way for Jesus' disciples to enjoy fellowship with him in his Father's kingdom. Back in Genesis 15, we, there was a lot of talk about the land. God was promising to give Abram the land of the ites. All the land that he was passing through was going to be given to Abram and his descendants. That promise was really a promise about a shadow. God was promising to bring the people into the land, a land of blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where God would come and dwell with them at the temple, where they would enjoy life under his law. There was a, but that was still a shadow. What was the ultimate end of God in the biblical story? It's to restore perfect fellowship between himself and his people. That perfect fellowship that Adam and Eve would have had if they had not fallen, that's what God is seeking to restore. And so even the promise of the land to Abram now finds its greater fulfillment in this promise that Jesus gives. That there will be a day when his disciples will gather with him in his father's kingdom and eat and drink a meal of fellowship with him. So we have these great promises, a promise of forgiveness of sins, in the, shedding blood of, in the shed blood of Christ, and a promise that he's opened the way for fellowship with him in his Father's kingdom. But we may find ourselves somewhat like Abram this evening. We may look at our own lives and look at our sins and look at how often we have turned against God. How often, even after we've heard his word, even after we've known a great measure of grace in our lives, we've still turned away from him. We've still rejected him. We've still chosen to do what we knew we should not do and failed to do the things we know we should do. And we may wonder, how could we be deserving of this great privilege of not only having our sins forgiven, but of now having a future of fellowship in the kingdom with the Father and Jesus? Has God done anything to assure us? In Genesis 15, we saw him pass through the divided animals to assure Abram that he would fulfill his promises. What has God done for us? Has he done anything for us? Well, the answer is he has. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 32, this will be the last text we'll look at this evening. This is a great verse, one that I suspect many of us are familiar with. Romans 18, verse 32. 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul says here, what has the Father done? The Father has not spared his own son. The the Father gave up his son. And it's not, some people are now talking about this terrible term of cosmic child abuse, and that's such a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Scripture is talking about. There's always a unity of the action of the three persons of the Trinity in salvation. Each of redemption, the Father, Son, and Spirit work in unison. 
So if it's true that the father did not spare his son, it's also true that the son chose to lay down his life. But at the cross, the father was giving up his son and the son was laying down his life to bear the judgment that our sins deserve. If God would not spare his son but give him up for us, will he not also with Jesus give us all things, graciously give us all things? And Paul is assuming the answer we'll understand to be yes. If, Jesus, if God would not spare his own son, he will certainly with his son give us all good things, including the fulfillment of the promises he's made to forgive us our sins and to open the way for us to enjoy fellowship with him forever in his father's kingdom. So what should we do tonight? Well, we should respond to the covenant that we see in Matthew 26 with the same way that Abram initially responded to God's promises. What did Abram do? He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We should hear God's promise. We should hear the promise that in the pouring out of the blood of Jesus, there's forgiveness of sins. That Jesus has made the way and is opening the path for us to enjoy fellowship in the kingdom with him. And we should entrust ourselves to those promises. Look to those promises as the basis for our salvation. And when we're prone to doubt, which we often are, we should increasingly look to the cross of Christ and, and see what the Father did there. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if He did that for us as sinners, will He not fulfill all of His promises to us? Let's pray. Almighty Father, we thank You for what You've shown us in Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that though we were indeed sinners, though we were children of wrath and your enemies, you were pleased to send your son. You did not spare him, but you, you gave him up for us to bear the judgment that our sins deserved. And that because of what he's done, we can now have forgiveness of sins by his blood and the hope, the hope looking forward to the day when we will enjoy perfect fellowship at your table with your son as your disciples. Father, help us to more and more believe the promises and that you would strengthen us and comfort us as we go through each day by these promises. And Lord, when we're prone to doubt, when our sins seem too great, when we seem so undeserving of your grace to us, help us to also look to the cross and be reminded that if you did that, if you did that work there, you will certainly fulfill all your promises to us. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.